This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The U.S. Olympic team has already racked up a pile of medals in South Korea. But back at home, fallout continues from the sexual abuse scandal involving hundreds of gymnasts. A bipartisan group of senators has launched an investigation into the U.S. Olympic Committee in Colorado Springs. Nancy Hogshead-Makar is a gold medalist Olympic swimmer. She's also founder of Champion Women, a legal advocacy group for female athletes. She joins us from Florida. Nancy, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Good to be here. We'll get back to the USOC in a moment. But first, last week, another Olympic athlete, a swimmer, accused her coach of sexual abuse. This follows decades of scandals at the Olympic level in gymnastics, swimming, speed skating, volleyball. How widespread is the problem and why does it keep happening? There's research from the International Olympic Committee that the more elite the athlete, the more likely they are to be abused from someone within their own entourage. Hmm. And it kind of makes sense that the more that an athlete wants it, the the more ambitious they are, uh, the more that, uh, that that desire puts them at risk of any all kinds of abuse, including sexual abuse. So, um, but I I, I think, um, you know, it's, I think it's a bit bizarre that um, athletics has really gotten out from under two normal ways that we protect uh, we protect people from sexual abuse, both men and women, adult men and women, and also we how we protect children. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know that um, you know all the other child. Uh, protection groups, all youth-serving organizations like Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and YMCA, Special Olympics and Police Athletic League and all these other groups, they have very strict standards on, you know, being alone with children and, right, we, and we, right. we recognize, right, the, what needs to be done here. And, uh, but for some reason, the Olympic movement doesn't adhere to those same standards and coaches are allowed to uh, travel with, they're allowed to in, specifically exclude parents from being involved. Do parents um, ever put up a fight about that, or are they accepting of that idea? I think that, you know, when they see their kid really love something, they think, they think this is just, this is the program, this is what I have to do to to have my kid be involved there. And I, I think the topic of sexual abuse is so jarring for most people. It's so like, you know, people get so frustrated or um, flummoxed when they think about it, that it keeps them from really thinking rationally. Um, And it keeps them from really critically thinking about, okay, what specifically do I need to do to protect my kid from sexual abuse? We all just think it would never happen to our kid, right? Mm. You won three gold medals and a silver at the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics. What was your experience like? Well, I was really lucky, and I had some phenomenal coaches. I had the great Randy Reese, who's in the Hall of Fame, and uh, we just we just raised a bunch of money, and we named a pool after him and just got together with all the old swimmers. He had such a huge impact in all, in all of our lives. Um, but I also had a coach named Mitch Ivey, who is now banned for life from for sexual abuse of his athletes. Hmm. Um, he did not abuse me, but he did sexually harass me. But he clearly was abusing my teammate in front of everyone. 
um, and he um, he didn't he didn't say I'm sexually abusing her. <laughs> Instead, what he said is I'm dating her. Hmm. This is my girlfriend. And did this you is, get him out? This is a consent. It took us thirty years. Thirty years. He, in 1993, um, outside the lines, uh, ESPN's outside the lines did a really good story that detailed his ongoing harassment of young girls. And um, he did get fired from the University of Florida swim team at that time, but he did not get kicked out of United States swimming. Hmm. And it was only from relentless pressure. There's an attorney out in California named Bob Allard, and Bob found uh, my teammate, um, who's been very public. I'm not disclosing anything that's not public, um, but her name is Suzette Moran, and Suzette, you know, released a public statement saying USA Swimming never tried to reach out to me. Hmm. So, um, yeah, and I was a part of that investigation. And in 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 talking to their investigator, I told them what I had seen, and then they came back and said two things. Number one is they said, um, Nancy, you're the only one that can verify that 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 said these things about Mitch Ivy. And I said, well, keep your investigation open. Let me just go <laughs> call about a dozen people because this is this was this was done in front of you. He didn't hide it. Right. And uh, so everybody that I called said, yeah, we already talked to the investigator. So nope. I was being lied to. Now, I want to turn to the Nasser case specifically and what responsibility, if any, the USOC has. And reports say the group was told of accusations against Dr. Nasser in 2015 and didn't alert athletes. Here's gold medalist Allie Raisman in her statement to the court at the Nasser sentencing. Why have I and others here probably not heard anything from the leadership at the USOC? Why has the United States Olympic Committee been silent? Why isn't the USOC here right now? Larry was the Olympic doctor, and he molested me at the 2012 London Olympic Games. They say now they applaud those who have spoken out, but it's easier to say that now. When the brave women who started speaking out back then, more than a year after the USOC says they knew about Nasser, they were dismissed. The USOC board chair said at a press conference in South Korea last week that the U.S. Olympic system failed hundreds of young female athletes, though it also said its CEO, quote, did the right thing at every turn. What do you think of how this was handled? I don't think you can have it both ways. I think that you set it up perfectly. On the one hand, there's, it just can't be that Scott Blackman did everything perfectly and on the same time that they failed these athletes. So I've been working on this issue specifically with the United States Olympic Committee for eight years now. And I can tell you that uh, the, 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 the question is, what didn't they know about Larry Nasser? The question is instead, what did they know about sexual abuse in Olympic sports? And what did they do to protect athletes from that? So very simple things like not allowing athletes to be alone with adults would have, bang, would have stopped Larry Nasser. You know, he did some of his abuse in front of parents and things like that, but could he have, like, whispered in their ear and could he have done as many nasty things as he did uh, uh, with if, he had, if we just had that one rule in place? The answer's no. Mm-hmm. And that's just one tiny example where the United States Olympic Committee, which is governed by a statute called the Amateur Sports Act, which gives the Olympic Committee 
the the responsibility and the power to be able to regulate all 47 sports out there, right? So not just gymnastics, but, you know, swimming and track and field and volleyball and et cetera. And, uh, and he did not do what he was supposed to do, which is to protect athletes. I should say uh, Blackman is the CEO of the USOC. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with Nancy Hogshead Makar about the sexual abuse scandal involving gymnasts. We've been talking about the USOC's role in the scandal. Hogshead Makar won three golds and a silver and swimming at the 1984 Olympics. She's an attorney and the founder of Champion Women, a group that advocates for girls and women in sports. Nancy, the USOC does have safeguards in place. It has an athlete ombudsman. Where was that person when all of this was going on? Oh, that's such a a great question. Scott Blackman had a marketing policy that may have been very good at raising money. It's called One Team. And what One Team came to mean was that there was no dissent. So he pulled the athlete ombudsman into the corporation side of the of the entity away from actually representing the interests of athletes. So whenever there was a conflict between the the USOC and the athletes, the athletes were really left out in the cold. So he and and he did that also with this, another group called the Athletes Advisory Council. Um, so he 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 d- squashed dissent by smothering it, hmm. and. And really left the athletes. You know, they had to they had to go out and get independent lawyers to get their national governing bodies to comply with what the Sports Act requires, rather than him doing it, rather than the leader of the USOC doing it, right? Right. And, and this brings us to the question of how important it is to educate athletes about abuse and and whether that's the role um, that the S- USOC should be taking on. Well, uh, as of today at 3.30, uh, the president is going to sign into law Senator Feinstein's legislation <clears throat> that uh, is going to require the, the USOC to, uh, it is part of their charter that they are required to predict and prevent and to address sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the legislation actually creates a separate entity that is going to be doing the investigation and sanctioning sexual abuse. But, um, no, I mean, you know, every other youth-serving organization already does this. Hmm. So wh- why not sports, right? Um, it, uh, it makes everybody within the Olympic movement, and I think this is going to be a big change for everybody, but it makes them a mandatory reporter so that if they suspect, they don't have to know, they don't have to do their own investigation, they shouldn't do their own investigation, but if they suspect that there's an issue... They must report it either to the police, child protection services, or to the FBI. They have three choices on where to go. But uh, um, it uh, it does a number of of other really good things that sort of, you know, uh, blocks up, if you will, some of the uh, problems that have been going on. But the the Athletes Advisory Council, the AAC, uh, this is by statute, 20% of all committees have got to be made up of athletes. They actually sent out a memo yesterday that called for more protection for athletes being able to speak out without reta- without fear of retaliation. Hmm. There are so many sports like gymnastics that there is a subjective component. You know, it does not in, in my sport in swimming, it's first or second at Olympic trials, and you know my, my coach couldn't advocate for me. 
right? There's nothing you can do. I've got to, right? As opposed mm-hmm. to gymnastics, if, if that coach does not like that athlete, they're gone. And so it means that there's enforced conformity. And if they can't say no to, um, you know, if they can't say no to doing something that's about to get them injured, then you better believe they can't say no to sexual abuse. Right. Their hands are tied. After the Nassar sentencing, the entire board of USA Gymnastics resigned, as did the president of Michigan State University, where Dr. Nassar worked. Now two U.S. senators have called for Scott Blackman, the CEO, to resign, and members of the USOC board are expressing their support for him, as we said. What's your view of whether he should resign? My view is that he should resign. So I've been involved for... Uh, as I said, eight years of writing, I wrote model statutes. I wrote model policies. I wrote, uh, I re- in 2014, I represented 19 victims of sexual abuse in the sport of swimming. And we, um, we, we did it to protest Chuck Walgus being admitted to the Hall of Fame. Uh, there was no legal course of action that these athletes could take. Um, he, Scott Blackman has known. And he was a coach, I should say. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, Chuck Walgus was the head of United States Swimming. Oh, okay. Thanks. And he, he knew about all this sexual abuse, and he didn't do anything about it, so we said, you shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. Hmm. And so we were successful. He did not make it into the Hall of Fame. And frankly, you know, he died not that long ago, and part of his New York Times obituary talked about how poorly he handled sexual abuse. It is his legacy. This hmm. will be Scott Blackman's legacy. Mm-hmm. And that he has had uh, Nancy. I'm sorry, we're running out of time. I have to cut you off here, but thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Nancy Hogshead Makar won three gold medals and a silver in swimming at the 1984 Olympics. She's an attorney and founder of Champion Women, which advocates for female athletes. We reached out to the USOC for comment and didn't get a response, but the invitation still stands. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Today we're going to take a different approach to Valentine's Day. Instead of hearts and flowers, we're going to talk hearts and fossils, dinosaur fossils. And we'll ask a very direct question. How did dinosaurs have sex? My guest, Erin LeCount, calls herself the Dr. Ruth of dinosaurs. She's manager of education programs for Dinosaur Ridge. It's a site west of Denver where you can see more than 300 dinosaur tracks and bones. And Erin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the invite. Dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago. What's so fascinating to you about how they had sex? That's a great question. Um, if you look at the size of most, a lot of them, right? You think of Brachiosaurus at 40 feet tall and 70 feet long, 56 tons. You think that's pretty big. How did they manage to do that? But the fascinating question would be Stegosaurus, our state fossil. Plates, spikes on the tail, not very inviting. Um, how did they reproduce? That's a great question. And um, how did they actually do it? 
Um, so f- when you're a kid, you ask all sorts of fun questions like how, how big were they and, and what did they eat? And when you get to be an adult and you're still a nerd about dinosaurs, you wonder weird things. So what's the answer? How did these acrobats work? How did they have sex? We don't know. Is the is the the, the short answer? Uh, we have to look at since we don't have dinosaurs here with us any longer, except for their relative that's still alive today in birds. Their closest related to is birds and crocodilians. So we can look at them and see how they have sex, and then do a comparison back to the anatomy of dinosaurs, which is kind of the sciency part of it. And the speculation part is a lot more fun, I think, of of asking the weird questions. Um, we have no idea how dinosaurs would have would have had sex. Um, did they have the structures to do what we think, uh, or are they more like birds in that they don't? Most birds don't have the structures needed that we think of being needed for for sex. So right, I mean, you're talking about perhaps a penis, yeah. which you would not see in in a fossil. Necessarily. Right? Yeah, there are no fossils of the <laughs> genitalia. There are no fossil uh, yet. I'll throw out yet. You never know what you're going to find next week. Uh, but there's there's nothing really in the fossil record that indicates how they would have had sex. It's even difficult to tell male to female. So we have to kind of play around a little bit, look at their relatives, poke in the dirt, see what else we can find. Now, you haven't done a scientific paper here. Your work is based on talking to paleontologists, other scientists. Um, and I, I just wonder, are there other ways to reproduce? They could have reproduced in other ways. We don't know, right? Sure. I mean, we know the the end product, right? We know that dinosaurs laid eggs. They were more similar to bird eggs than to lizard eggs. They were hard-shelled, just like modern birds. Um, in fact, a lot of them had s- shapes similar to modern bird eggs. So we know how they they really hatched, right? We know how the babies came around. Did they have a penis or was it more similar to um, how 97% of birds have sex and that they uh, both have a cloaca and they just kind of line up and mash it together and see what happens? Um, right. Or are they like the weird 3% of birds that do have a penis? Would they be more like that? Those birds tend to be more primitive when looking at their DNA. So it's possible that dinosaurs would have more in common with these more primitive birds like ducks, geese, swans. You're going to look at ducks at the park, totally a different way now. Ducks, geese, swans, and ratites, which would be your ostriches and emus. Is there a way to tell the difference between male and female dinosaur fossils? Yes. And it's a weird way in that um, because they lay eggs like birds, they take the calcium from their own bones to put the calcium around the eggs before they lay them. So they grow this fun, weird type of bone. It's like an intermediate bone called medullary bone. We see it in birds. Hmm. You don't see it in in crocs and gators because they lay soft-shelled eggs. But... We have found that medullary bone in a few different types of dinosaurs, Tyrannosaurus rex being one of them, um, which tells us definitively this specimen is a female. Mm. She's about to lay some eggs. There are no other physical features. So unless you catch the dinosaur right when it dies, about when it's going to lay some eggs, you're not going to be able to tell the difference between a girl and a boy T-Rex. Now, lots of people are just fascinated by dinosaurs, and the skeletons are a big draw in museums. Um, There are scientists who devote their entire lives to studying them. How frustrated are they (laughs) that they can't answer this big question? I'm not sure if... 
most of them get past the funny, you know? I mean, there are definitely paleontologists out there that are probably more frustrated about it than others. Uh, I think it's kind of a fun subject to bat around. It's one of those, you know, physics has their conundrum questions and chemistry has theirs. Dinosaur nerds, we just kind of talk about, well, wait a second, let's ask weird questions because that's kind of, it's still all important to scientific thought, right? Now, you talk to a lot of kids at Dinosaur Ridge. Mm -hmm. Do they ever ask you these questions? Absolutely. You know, you're never away from that weird eight-year-old going, how do dinosaurs have babies? And we just go with eggs. (laughs) <laughs> you know, we just go to the end point with the kids and, and, and teach them about how, what their egg structures are and how they nest, which is still pretty fascinating. And it's good enough for them. Um, but you get those adults that go, no, no, no. How? I wanted to know how, not the end product. And so it's been kind of a fun, weird journey in trying to look at different research and read some papers and talk to some paleontologists and say, what is out there on this? And everybody has weird ideas. And there's some good stuff. Just to wrap up. Is this a way to get regular folks interested in dinosaurs? I hope so. I hope um, this is a way to get more adults into dinosaurs and prehistoric. I mean, again, that idea of critical scientific thinking, which we need more today um, in adults and uh, in kids. So it's kind of a fun way to get dinosaurs back on the table as opposed to not being an eight-year-old anymore. Erin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Erin LeCount is Manager of Education Programs for Friends of Dinosaur Ridge. We've been talking about how dinosaurs make babies just in time for Valentine's Day. This is CPR's Colorado Matters. We look like a dinosaur Let the fossil record show That we look like a dinosaur Let the fossil record show That we A list of Colorado's most endangered places came out recently. It includes the oldest schoolhouse in Colorado, the Doyle School in Pueblo. There's also a huge ranch in Park County that's threatened. And perhaps the most curious thing on the list, tunnels beneath towns across the state. Tracy Beach wrote a book about them. She told Ryan Warner she didn't know they existed until she was digging into the story of a notorious madame. And I was able to get hold of a thousand-page interview done back in the 40s. And in the interview, she mentions these tunnels in Salida. And I just followed her clues, and there they were. Okay, so Salida has these tunnels for sure? Actually, Slida has, from what I have found so far, the best preserved tunnel system that's still open in the whole state. And how did this madam uh, make use of them? Um, She mentioned about how they would hide the bootleg booze in them during Prohibition. In fact, there's an image in the book of an underground speakeasy. Yes. uh, Bar stools and everything. Where is that? Tell us about that. That's actually in Victor in the Elks Lodge. There's actually a um, secret entrance that's through a hidden bookcase with a secret um, hidden panel that you slide over. Okay. So you might have used these tunnels to hide booze, uh, contraband, if you will. (laughs) What else uh, might they have been used for? Well, actually, the original idea was um, just to deliver merchandise off the trains. If you think about old Western stores, they were very narrow. And so they just shoved as much 
merchandise into them as they could. So what they would do is they had these tunnels in the basements, and when they would bring the things off the trains, they would just simply slide them down a staircase into the basement level, which was the tunnels, and sort it in the basement. That way it wasn't um, blocking the front of the store. They sound like those things in New York almost. That's what they, yes. Deliveries are kind of made underground. Yes. I see. Yes, the same thing. And you went on a search to find these all over Colorado. Yes. Tell us about some of your favorites. The one in Pueblo, which unfortunately they destroyed part of it um, so they could put in planters on the sidewalk to prevent large trucks from turning onto Santa Fe. Luckily, most of his tunnel's still there. Okay. Where is that in Pueblo? Yes. It's at the Great Divide Bike Shop on Santa Fe and 4th. Um, luckily, they didn't touch the entire tunnel system. It's actually 10 feet tall and about 8 feet wide. It's beautiful inside. Uh, how about another one? Maybe um, in Denver. Um, the ones in Denver, there was actually one that actually led from um, Maddie's House of Mirrors. Is this Maddie Silks? The, yes. The, the famous madam? Yes, the House of Mirrors. And then um, the only one that's actually that I was in that was still open was the one outside the Oxford that led over to Union Station. The Oxford Hotel. Mm-hmm. It's still open. Mm-hmm. You, you went down there. Why does it qualify as one of your favorites? Um, just because of the fact that they've preserved it so well. And you found these in property records or blueprints or oh, what? Oh, no, no. Um, they're not in any of these Sanborn fire maps. They're not listed anywhere. So how did you find them? Um, I would just go to, after I found the ones in Salida, I knew which kind of buildings I was looking for. I knew how to find them. And I just went from historic town to historic town and make phone calls and knocked on doors. One clue to their existence, these these tunnels, mm-hmm. um, are what you call pavement lights or vault lights. Yes. How does that tip you off? Well, a vault light um, is embedded inside of a manhole cover, and then the crystals are embedded inside the manhole cover, and that actually allowed light into the tunnel system. Were owners of properties that have these tunnels cooperative? Are there some who just said, no, you can't get down there? The only problem I had was actually in Leadville. Um, they were kind of cold, and they wouldn't let me in most of the buildings up in Leadville. I had problems there, but um, every other town was extremely nice. Okay. I do notice in the book that you sometimes will list a location of a you know a photo or a story as location withheld. Right. It's as if some people don't want to tip the public off to the fact that there are tunnels underneath. Well, the reason that is is because in Durango, for example, um, a couple years before I went and did the research, somebody went and did some ma- a story for a magazine, and um, after it came out, the stores were broken into and robbed. Oh, And I so see. when I was in Durango, they asked that I not list the locations. And what is it like down there? Just describe the environment. Are there rats running around? Or, you know, what? <laughs> Actually, um, only once did we ever see mice, and that was in Leadville. Besides that, you just see a lot of spider webs. Um, a lot of these places are simply a trap door on the floor, and you go in. There's no electric. It's musty down there. The floor is made out of dirt. You're just walking down there, dodging spider webs with a flashlight. Uh, do you hope to see these preserved in some way oh, yes. to raise their profile? Oh, yes. I mean, I think this is a very important part of history of Colorado. And um, I have a chapter in my book of all the different states that do give tours of their restored tunnels. And it just would be nice if Colorado would do the same, would really help with tourism. It, it's, it sounds to me like if I wanted to see one of these right now today, my options would be limited. There's only two places that give tours okay. as, as of right now. The Blake Street Vault, which is a bar and grill on Blake Street. Um, they have two open tunnel systems. In Denver? In Denver. And they actually give free tours. But there's actually close up at the street, so they're not very deep. And then at the Stanley Hotel. At the Stanley Hotel in yes. Estes Park. Yes. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you. 
Tracy Beach, author of The Tunnels Under Our Feet. These tunnels statewide are on a new list of endangered places in Colorado. That's our show for today. Thanks for your loyalty to CPR. If you're not already a member, we hope you'll join. This is CPR's Colorado Matters.